Our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 1. This is Ascension Sunday. Ascension Day is 40 days after the resurrection of Christ, and we have um, this Sunday celebrates that period of time. Think back when Easter was, and think of today, and think of the time lapse in between Easter and this Sunday. That was the period of time in which Jesus was alive by his resurrection and appeared over and over to his disciples. That was the thing that really convinced them more than anything else of who he was. They saw him alive, and he met with them under a number of circumstances in a number of ways with a number of different ones, sometimes one, sometimes many. Paul outlines this in the book of 1 Corinthians. It was these post-resurrection pre-ascension days that God, that Christ did so much. One of the things he did, as outlined in our text, is he was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And then we pick up with our the story of the, te- of the uh, ascension itself in verse 6. So when they, that is the Lord and all of his disciples, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We read just a few moments ago the answer to question 53 in our catechism. The standards of our church, the Presbyterian Church in America, are the Westminster standards crafted in around 1640-44 in England by men who every one of them were priests in the Anglican Church. And they had been called together by the Parliament to revise the 39 articles. And as they worked on that task, it became apparent to them that what they needed to do was to rewrite the 39 articles. And they did just that and produced what we know as the Westminster Confession of Faith, which are the articles of our faith, Bible doctrine condensed in small compass and placed in topical categories that we might understand the truths of the Christian faith and know what we believe and be able to tell others and be able to bear witness and to be able to congregate and have fellowship around this understanding of the Word of God. 
But that was not the totality of their task. They were also asked to produce a catechism, a short catechism for children and youngsters and communicants in the church, new believers, and that we know as the shorter catechism, about 97 questions. That really should have done it. But then they were also asked, these same group of divines, were asked to produce a longer, a larger, a more expansive uh, catechism. And that, of course, is what we know as the larger catechism, with about 196 questions. And we just looked at question 53 in our reading a little while ago. How was Christ exalted in his ascension? That paragraph ought to tell us something about what we are to believe about Ascension Sunday and about the ascension of Christ. Do you know why the larger catechism was given? The main import, the reason that it was an important thing for the Westminster divines to have? For the preachers. It was given in order that the preachers might have an outline of all the major and important questions of our faith to be able to preach point by point to the people. I don't know how many pastors in the PCA do this, but when I was a Baptist pastor, I used a very similar catechism, almost word for word in so many points, that taught the faith that had been crafted during the same half-century as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And in a little church I was pastoring, preached through those questions, one after another. Tremendous, tremendous way to learn the faith is to take the larger catechism and go through the point-by-point explanation in the answers to those very important, crucial questions. And I would encourage you to do it. And if you did... As you notice this morning, there is a tremendous overlap, as we would expect it to be, between the answer to that question, how was Christ exalted in his ascension, and this narrative we have of the ascension story of Jesus. The ascension is moving toward the, the victorious side of the work of Christ. We read in our call to worship the story of the humiliation of Christ, how he was humbled by being fully divine with splendor and glory and majesty and equal with the Father in every way. The Son came in humility to become a human, but not just a human, a baby in order that he might go through every year, every phase, every change, every epoch of time in the human life, that he might be in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. But not just the humiliation of being a baby that must grow and develop and mature, but to be of humble origins, not born in a palace, but born in a stable And then to be despised and rejected of men, to enjoy the fellowship of a small committed band, but to have the 
population at large misunderstand and, and mistreat him. The humiliation of rejection. And then finally the humiliation of an awful miscarriage of justice. Roman justice as well as Jewish justice. And have him condemned and then crucified in the awful humiliation of being stretched upon a cross naked before the world, bleeding and suffering as he died. And then to be taken down and buried in the earth. How much further down must Jesus have gone? The prophecy found in the book of Psalms speak of it as being in the pit, in the abyss, going down to the place of death, going down to the place of rejection. The greatest curse anywhere in the Bible was the curse of death, and Jesus now had borne that curse in his own human body, humiliated all the way. But the same Psalms had said he would not suffer the Lord to see corruption. And as he lay there in the tomb, the work being finished, as he lay there on the Sabbath day, on Saturday, resting in the tomb, on the very next day before dawn, there was a rising, not of the sun, but of the sun. He came forth out of that tomb, alive in the same body that they had hung upon the cross, now was resurrected and glorified. He'd been sown into corruption, but had been raised in incorruption. He'd been sown to defeat, but had been raised to victory. And that begins the exaltation of Christ. And he was raised up, the Bible says. And then... As I mentioned earlier, he spent about 40 days with his disciples teaching them and instructing them. I have a feeling that Jesus just repeated everything he had said the first three years. <laughs> Except this time they got it. This time it made all the difference in the world. It wasn't just a Galilean carpenter teaching them some principles out of the old scriptures. It was a resurrected Lord. And when he spoke of the kingdom of God in the earlier days, they thought, well, maybe we'll make him a king. He, he has some potential. He's a wonder worker. He's a powerful man. He's a charismatic man. There's a lot of things about him that might make him our political and military leader. But now they knew he was a king of God's appointing. This day I have begotten thee, the scripture says. This is the time when he had been raised to sit upon the throne of David, his father. He had been exalted by his resurrection. It was only after these 40 days then that he ascended, as we look at this morning. His ascension was his being taken back up into heaven to be restored with that glory which he had left earlier to come to earth. He had prayed a longing prayer the night before his death. Father, restore me with the glory which I had in thee before the world began. He wanted that pre-creative glory. When he expressed the glory of God and the ascension was that event, that answer to that prayer. God raised him up in resurrection 
and lifted him up in ascension. And there's one more step to his exaltation at that period. He was placed upon the throne of David. He was enthroned, resurrected, ascended, and enthroned. That's what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 52, said he will be high, he will be lifted up, he will be exalted. Three Hebrew words, all talking about the stages of the glorification of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. The disciples asked him about the times of the kingdom. He had been talking about the nature of the kingdom. He had been talking about the gospel of the kingdom. He had been talking about the ethics of the kingdom. There were a lot of things Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. And they now began to see it much more clearly. But they were concerned about the calendar. They were concerned about the chronology. And so in our text it says that when they were together, he said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? At this time. They were concerned about the chronology. We know the what of all of this, but when is the when? And Jesus tells them, as he had told them earlier in his teaching and recorded in the Gospel of Mark, he said, no one knows the time of my appearing, my coming, the parousia, the return. He had told him he'd go away, told him he would come back. And he said he didn't know the time in which he was coming. That was known only to the Father. And that's what he tells them there. He says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. These things the Father has fixed by His own authority. The authority of God Almighty was that He knew the times and the seasons. Everything about the Lord God Almighty has to do with times and seasons. He works in eternity past. He works in the beginning. He works in history. He works in the eschaton, the last day of history. He works in eternity future to us. He transcends time. He lives and inhabits eternity. But he works in time. And in his time, he has fixed the times and the seasons. The the first word here that's translated times is that word we're familiar with, which means chronology the passing of time, the turning of the calendar. Day after day, year after year, month after month, just going along. Those are important because the expanse of those times sometimes are a little bit difficult for us to grasp. In fact, some people have real problems thinking that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said he was coming back and he hasn't come back yet, so just maybe he's not coming back. But as I reminded you before, it was 2,000 years between the time God gave the promise to Abraham and the time that Jesus actually came to earth. Our Lord's chronology, the Father's chronology, is not our sense of time. It's His determinate, fixed, purposeful events that He wants to happen. And by using the word events, I am basically translating the second word, seasons. These are the special times, the epochs of time, the events, the occurrences that are significant along that timeline. And neither one of these are known to us. They were not known to the disciples. But they were given 
Not only this teaching of Jesus, but also the admonition of the two men in white apparel, the two heavenly beings who seemed to follow Jesus around a lot since the days of the resurrection when they were in the garden and in the tomb. These two, these two angelic, powerful ambassadors. They tell the disciples and thereby tell us that we are not to be just gazing at the stars gazing at the heavens, that we are to be about a business. They also tell us that we are not to know the times. We don't know if the Lord's return is going to be 2,000 years from his life, which would be pretty soon, could be, or it's 3,000 years, or 4,000, or 5,000. One of the great errors that has swept over American Christianity more than any other Christianity, Christian group in, in the world has been the idea of setting the times, setting dates along the chronology. So far, they've all been mistaken. My guess is that all the rest of them that try that will be mistaken as well. But even worse than that, I think, is they've also tried to outline the events or the seasons or tell us something about the, that those periods of time that are marked by signs that we can interpret in such a way that now we can be a pretty accurate predictor of when Christ returns. We are not to know about this long, indeterminate period of time. In fact, if I were going to describe this long, indeterminate period of time mathematically, I would say it is a time, times a time, times a time, times, times, time. And that's the indeterminate. We do not know when the Lord will come. But let's talk for just a moment before we're done about the ascension itself because it is a precious, precious event in the life of Christ. And let me point out a couple of things about you. About it, He tells them they'll, be, they'll have the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon them. That's the promise keep, and we've dealt with that in other subjects at other times. He said, you'll be my witnesses. And by the way, I can't pass this up. Let me just flip back here to, uh, to the book of Isaiah. The, Isaiah 43, the great I Am passage where it says, I am the Lord, and it says, I am your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel. Over and over and over, the Lord kept saying, I am, I am doing a new thing. I will make a way in the wilderness. I give water in the wilderness. I will give drink to my chosen people. See, we, we've seen that with the water of life theme that we've seen. But listen to that same, that same uh, psalm. I mean, that same passage. It is a psalm, by the way. It is in poetic form in the book of Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 9. All the nations shall gather together and all the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. Listen, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Can't you see the gospel? The times are for the believing of the peoples, in order for the peoples to come to faith, in order for the gospel to be preached by these witnesses, God's personal witnesses. Perhaps here it has in mind, first of all, the nation Israel. They were to be a light to the nations. 
Then in specific, it refers to Jesus. He is the witness of the Father. He bears witness. He, the one that's seen him has seen the Father. But then Jesus moves it to his disciples and said, you are my witnesses. This is gospel preaching that they may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed preaching. Proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I am he who blots out your transgressions. I will remember your sins no more. The witnesses have something to do. And the witnesses are to declare the gospel. The redeeming, saving grace of God in His servant, Jesus Christ. That's what we are doing. That's exactly what Jesus said. You'll be my witnesses. You will begin in Jerusalem. And if I had a little time to preach, I'd stop right there. If I'm Peter and John and James and those original disciples, there's 11 of them at this point, because Judas has fallen, as you know. I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. (laughs) I'm in Galilee. I'm back in my boat. I'm back fishing. I'm out from away from Herod. I'm out from away from Pilate. I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. There's no reason in the world I would ever want to go to Jerusalem. Like me, I have no desire to go to Washington, D.C. I've been there. I've visited. It's a great, wonderful place, but I have no desire. I can live the rest of my days if I never see the capital. Just, that's just me. And I think that's the way they were. They just didn't care for Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you're going to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> it's where you're going to start. They had to go back to Jerusalem. He ordered them to go back to the city and to tarry there. With every bone in their body, every instinct they had said, so let's go to Galilee. Let's get back home where it's safer and where it's comfortable. But he outlines the path of their missionary journeys to the end of the earth. It means you're going to end up going to both ends of the Mediterranean. You're going to end up going north and south. You're going to go to Europe. You're going to go to Britannia. You're going to go to Hispania. You're going to go to Persia. You're going to begin to move. You're going to go down into Africa. You're going to take the gospel around the world and across the centuries. But it says, when he had said these things, he's still teaching them right up to the last minute. Isn't that beautiful? And as they were looking on him, he has their attention now, by the way. I imagine some of them might have dozed off in some of Jesus' longer lectures, but nobody's going to sleep now. You're looking at the face of the risen Lord. You're not going to sleep. You're, 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 you're looking at him intently. As they were looking on, he was lifted up. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. We think of that as him being lifted up on the cross, and rightly so. We think of that as him being lifted up in gospel preaching, and rightly so. But it's also him being lifted up in his ascension, because this is when he has been honored and been restored to that glory and been enthroned upon that eternal throne of King David. He says, he was lifted up. That's the ascension, the lifting up of Christ. That's his ascension. It says, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Oh, this, this imagery is so, so vivid. Listen to the prophet Daniel in a vision. I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what's going on here. Christ is being lifted up. And this cloud, by the way, is the glory cloud. It's the Shekinah glory of God that filled the temple. It's where the presence of God dwells in a visible, palpable form for human eyes to see. We cannot see God in His glory, but we can see this cloud. And by the way, in the New Testament, this cloud's mentioned three times. It was mentioned on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw a cloud. Jesus was enveloped in this cloud. That was His glory that they saw on the mountain. But what happened? Eventually, the cloud lifted. And when the cloud lifted, there was only Jesus standing there. So if you're Peter and John and James and all the other brothers, aren't you staring and waiting for that cloud to lift and that that vapor to move aside and to see Jesus? That didn't happen this time. They're just gazing, staring, waiting for him to appear out of that cloud as he had done before. But he doesn't. He goes out of sight. Lifted up to the Father into the third heaven, into that celestial abode where he will perform a work. He will plead for his disciples. He will intercede for his disciples. He will by his spirit direct and comfort and guide and guard his disciples as a shepherd does a flock. And he will prepare for them a place where one day they can join him in eternal bliss. He is building the holy city, the new Jerusalem, adorning it as a bride, getting it ready. He has a work. He's ruling and reigning over all the earth in his providence and over his people in his presence. That's what he's doing in heaven right now. It's interesting it says that that it was in our confession, in his human form, Jesus remained incarnate. The babe in Bethlehem grew to be the man, the young man of the the carpenter shop, went on to become the teacher of Galilee, crucified, resurrected in that same body, and he was taken up in that same body. It was a visible, physical ascension. And the, the men in white robes say, This same Jesus, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, the ascension, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven, is the way the King James reads. All that was true of his ascension will be true of his return. It will be in a physical. It will be visible. It will be a literal return, not just some spiritual return. Return of his presence comes and goes and his spirit came later and that's the return of Christ. No, it is an actual return. Other passages of scripture tell us about it. The triumphant glory that will come when he comes with myriads of his angels. When he comes in power and might and majesty. When every eye shall look upon him and see him. And all the things that are true about the second coming of Christ or the return of Christ. Or the parousia, the appearing, the mighty appearing. He came in shrouded humility. 
the first time. The second time he comes in splendor and glory and power and exaltation. Well, I'm out of time. I've got to stop. But let me just say one thing. If you sit today at the feet of Jesus and learn of him and believe him and trust him and serve him and receive from him all the gifts of the forgiveness of sins and the working of the Holy Spirit and the water of life and the bread of life and all that he has for you, his atoning blood purging you. If you sit at his feet, then you now are his friend. You are his disciple. You're his own. If you do not, if you for somehow ignore him or refuse him, when he comes in the clouds of glory, you will be under his feet.